0: Welcome back to In the Know. I'm Luke Diamond. This week we have a story from podcast reporter J.D. Duggan about a topic that we spent a lot of time on last semester, and that is university history. Last semester we looked at it through the lens of the renaming Kaufman controversy, but J.D. has found a new perspective on it. Uh, It overlaps a little bit with Kaufman, Um, and I think we're just going to get straight down to it. Let's let's get to
1: the story. We're going back. Way back. In 1851, the University of Minnesota was established. Six years before the Supreme Court Dred Scott decision, which legalized slavery in the Minnesota territory and other territories. Seven years before Minnesota became a state, and just a decade before the start of the American Civil War. Between 1850 and 1865, the state of Minnesota and its institutions were being built from the ground up, and southern slaveholders were making major investments, literally, into the state's foundations. I drove up to St. Cloud to talk to one of the premier scholars of slavery in Minnesota.
2: Well, what makes slave labor interesting when it comes to Minnesota is, again, the, the fact that the people who were generating the capital, by and large never set foot in Minnesota
1: itself. That's Dr. Christopher Lehman. He's a professor at St. Cloud State University and the chair of the Department of Ethnic, Gender and Women's Studies there.
2: Now when Southerners would come to Minnesota on vacation, or for business purposes, in the spring and summer months every year, they would generally bring no more than two or three slaves with them. So that wouldn't be a whole lot of slavery that people would see within Minnesota's borders itself.
1: He just published a book, Slavery's Reach, Southern Slaveholders in the North Star State. His office is a classic academic office. He has papers and files strewn throughout it.
2: There are stories of Southerners and their slaves disembarking from the steamboats that dock in the Twin Cities, let's say. And Some of the people who hated slavery would gather around the docks and boo the Southerners as they walked by. But they would have been in the minority. The majority of Minnesotans either were outspokenly in favor of the Southern dollars that were coming in, or they just wouldn't say anything about the fact that they were bringing slaves to a free territory and a free
1: state. If you've been around the Twin Cities, you might recognize names like Sibley and Rice. Henry Sibley and Henry Rice were politicians and kind of like founding fathers of the state. They were among the first regents at the U. They were also employed by a slaveholding company. One name you might now recognize is William Aiken.
2: Up until my research, the last mentioning of Aiken giving money to the U of M or having anything to do with the U of M financially was in the regents report of 1863.
1: William Aiken Jr. held 700 enslaved people, more slaves than anybody else in South Carolina. He had a lot of money. When he visited the University of Minnesota before it opened in the 1850s, the school was struggling to pull together money. It didn't have enough funds to finish the construction of the campus's oldest building, Old Main. Old Main burned down in the early 1900s.
2: And when Aiken saw the U of M in its condition, he decided that he would loan fifteen thousand dollars to the U of M, and that translates into a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. And with that money, the U of M was able to con- to finish construction of Old Main, or at least f- continue constructing it because construction had halted. I think ten thousand of the fifteen thousand went to the building alone. And the U of M was able to open up in 1858.
1: Um, So you, you touched on this a little bit, but do you think the University of Minnesota would exist without the help of slaves?
2: I don't think that it would have opened in 1858 without it, certainly. There was just so much money that was given by slaveholders at once that it allowed the U of M to progress in terms of its construction and its ultimate reopening in 1858 a lot faster than it would have. And it's because Henry Rice knew that the Southerners that worked with him in Congress were the ones who had a lot of money. And as someone who was working in capacity as a regent, he made this decision to Um, uses power as a region to recruit slaveholders to give to the university, or at least to loan to the university.
1: So I asked Dr. Lehman why this matters.
2: The people that I talk about, especially whenever I talk about 20th century figures, um, they really appreciate feeling that their existence is validated. And they appreciate knowing that someone cares enough about their history to talk about their contributions and to say that their lives and what they did has meaning and certainly for descendants of slaves who often feel left out of the history of Minnesota for me to have research that says even going back to the beginning when African Americans were not physically here so much, you made a difference in the state um, I, I believe that's a very powerful message.
1: So, I wanted to know how the university's history with slavery affects the institution today. Doctor
3: Wright, yes, sir. JD, JD. JD. All right. Good, Good morning. morning. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Good.
1: Um, you mind if I just? Uh, Doctor the- John Wright is a professor emeritus in the Department of African American and African Studies, where he was a faculty member for thirty-five years. Before that, he spent a decade as an undergrad and graduate student at the U. He's part of a family lineage with ties to the U going back to 1901. We met in Wilson Library. At a notorious regents meeting last semester about the renaming of campus buildings, Dr. Wright spoke directly to the Board of Regents about why the university's ties to racism and slavery are difficult to unearth.
3: The single best source of information on African-American life on this campus, on the policies of the, of the university administration, on the positions of the region, and so forth, is not in the university archives. It's in the archives of the black press. Of the
1: eight to 10 Dr. Wright was a part of the takeover of Morrill Hall in 1969, where a handful of black students took over the U's administration building to demand the creation of a department of African-American and African Studies. Dr. John Wright is an authoritative and passionate speaker. When we met, he was wearing a beret with a winged scarab pinned to the front.
3: Well, part of what Professor Lehman's work does, it clarifies in the territorial era era, to the extent to which slave-holding forces and, again, the economic outreach, again, of the slave power were instrumental in the development of the Minnesota territory.
1: He told me about some of the U's first black students in the 1890s. Remember, they enrolled about one generation after the Emancipation Proclamation abolished slavery. They enrolled in professional schools, particularly the law school. I asked Dr. Wright about the marginalization these students must have faced, but he kind of pivoted from my question.
3: Okay, by by contrast to what you're suggesting... Um, the history of black students at the university is not a history of, of, of uninterrupted or comprehensive op- racial oppression and discrimination. As I said earlier, part of the reason why these black law students came to the University of Minnesota was in part by the comparatively open policies here in terms of admissions at least uh, that were attractive to them.
1: That nuance is important and it fits within a larger timeline. The university didn't implement segregation policies until the university's fifth president, Lotus Delta Kaufman, took office from 1920 until he died in 1938. Kaufman is the namesake of the student union.
3: And the era of of university Jim Crow policies begins only with Lotus Kaufman, who was the first president to officially create uh, a, a system of discrimination and
1: exclusion on the campus. Dr. Wright said there was a sort of cultural awakening within the black community around this time. It's not all about the struggle against uh,
3: injustice and discrimination and so forth. The years, again, that my uh, aunt and father uh, were here on campus, again, in the 1930s, were years that were also part of this grand cultural awakening in black communities across this country that we now call the Harlem Renaissance, the Black Renaissance, the New Negro Movement, and so on.
1: The U is also holding convocations or large assemblies with progressive black leaders, artists, and intellectuals. So Kaufman's regime of attempted Jim Crow on this campus was being counterpointed
3: by progressive and creative forces on this campus that were allied with local black community enterprises. So we're obviously in a different
0: era of the university. Where does all of this leave us today?
1: Yeah, I asked Dr. Wright. He said there's still a lot of history to unearth and understand to really be able to progress forward.
3: Of course, we're still at the at the in the early stages of trying to recover the history itself there's a great deal of work to be done in that regard and here's where again uh, perhaps a new era of of cooperation on campus between the central administration the libraries and archives and faculty staff and students can help us uh, recover or uncover what's been lost or kept out of sight along the way there's a great deal of such history to be addressed and who's behind this work
1: Well, much of the renaming work happened with faculty from the History Department, but the Department of African American and African Studies is helping to shine a light on this history and what it means moving forward. The department held their third in a series of teach-ins last Friday in Bleggen Hall. Dr. Rose Brewer is a professor in the department. She led the event by reading a poem.
4: Afro-Infinity. In, infinitely black, did you not get the memo? Black don't crack. Black infinite,
1: indefinitely, forever, forever, ever, I asked Dr. Brewer about ever. the teach-in, which was black a discussion among black students and their research yeah, in black please. studies.
4: The culmination of a series of teach-ins we've had uh, during 2019, uh, beginning in uh, January. This particular teach-in uh, spotlights both graduate and undergraduate uh, scholarship in uh, Black Studies.
1: Their research varied widely, from Black Milwaukeeans and industrialization, to New Age-style healing in the Black community, to researching movements like Black Lives Matter. The thread between their research was about Blackness and the Black community. Some also focused on intersectionality. It centers on you know a black transgender gender variant person being kind of the center point of animating the logics of like these dominant things that we engage with which is white supremacy capitalism homophobia transphobia and how you know you can have people who intersect with all of that and for me you know I think black studies what it does it places black people essential to the foundations of all that we see That without us, none of this would exist.
0: Interesting. That sounds a lot like what you heard from Dr. Lehman.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I understood it as elevating black voices and celebrating the importance of black people in building this country,
4: even if some of those individuals have been mostly unseen by historians. Uh, There's a historical continuity. Some of the same recurrent issues are being raised. Uh, The visibility of black life. uh, Where does blackness fit in the context of the University of Minnesota? That was a key question in uh, 1969. Um, That was a question about curriculum. It was a question about the culture of the institution. It was a question about who matters on this campus. And I heard quite a number of those same issues still being confronted and dealt with in uh, 2019. So that continuity piece is one that I think stands out, but also uh, new scholarship, new direction, new questions are being asked that uh, 50 years ago probably were not even imagined.
0: And here's the rest of the U's news.
4: ESPN's College
0: Game Day is coming to Dinkytown. For the first time in university history, the network's flagship college football pregame show will focus on a Gopher football game. The game, Minnesota versus Wisconsin at TCF Bank Stadium in a battle for Paul Bunyan's axe this Saturday. Minnesota is defending the axe for the first time in 15 years. The proposed African Village public market is roiling Cedar Riverside community members who want greater input in its development. At a listening session last Thursday, residents voiced concerns about the market's effects on local businesses, public safety, and their say in those matters. The market is planned to open in 2022. This episode of In the Know was produced by me, edited by Tiffany Bui, and reported by J.D. Duggan. JD also did our intro music. Listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also check out our sports podcast, The Weekly Rundown, hosted by Minnesota Daily Sports editor Paul Hodawanek. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. And hey, happy Thanksgiving.